What do you find in your Bible? The epistle of James. And I'll ask you to find chapter 1, verse 27. And then if you'll also locate chapter 4, beginning in verse 4 through verse 10. Two texts for our message this morning. Today we're resuming our look at what we've called the three tests of pure religion. Uh, you might remember that James has been showing his readers and showing us what a real and vibrant faith in our Lord Jesus looks like in the most practical of terms. And he's been applying these three indicators in a very, very simple and yet profound way. The first, you might remember, the first test of vibrant real faith is that of a controlled tongue. And then we talked about the second test, that of a compassionate heart. Today is the third and final test. We'll begin looking at this one as we consider the words of verse 27 of chapter 1 and then verse 4 and following of chapter 4. Let's hear the word of the Lord one more time. James 1, 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and, here's the third test, to keep oneself unstained from the world. And then turn now to the explanation, the elaboration of that test that begins in chapter 4, verse 4. James writes, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And now may the Lord richly bless the proclamation of his holy word. Well, let's go back and recall the issue that's on the table. What has James been concerned about? Well, he's concerned about understanding what true religion is in the eyes of God. What is true faith? What is the kind of religion that God accepts? And so in chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, he lays out this vision of true saving faith in Jesus Christ. And he tells us by way of these three tests, he makes it clear that the, the Lord Jesus sends his spirit into our hearts upon conversion and a dramatic difference is made between what we are in Christ and what we used to be. Now, James is not saying that the, the content of our faith is not important, for indeed, he will, he will talk about the content of the gospel, that we must believe the right things. He, he has no room for a work's salvation. James is preaching in his epistle the same gospel Jesus preached, the same gospel that the apostles believed and preached, but his, his simple emphasis is upon the fact that becoming a Christian involves a life-changing encounter with the one who raises us spiritually from the dead 
And at the moment we become a Christian, we are being transformed into the image of the beloved Son of God. We are saved, as Peter would say, that we may obey Jesus Christ, that we may be holy as the Lord is holy. And that gift of life, the life that we have in Christ, begins now. And there are dramatic changes that are issued forth. And James is saying these, these give evidence of a pure, true faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what is the third test? Well, the third test of a true faith has to do, as you see in verse 27, with the believer's relationship to the world. In other words, those who know Christ, by virtue of knowing Christ, have a, have a different association with the world. Now, that begs the question, doesn't it? What is the world? What is this thing called the world that James is, is so concerned about? He would say that we are to keep ourselves as Christians unstained from the world. What is the world of which he speaks? Well, you can see in verse 27 there are some hints there. It's clear that he's talking about something very sinister, something evil. We're to keep ourselves from something. The, the world, as James would, would term it, is something bad. He, he's speaking of the word world in a decidedly negative sense. He's not speaking about the earth. He isn't talking about the creation. He's not suggesting that the material world that God has made is evil. He isn't telling us to, to, to board a rocket ship and escape the planet or go hide in a cave somewhere. The word world means something else in this context. What is the world? Well, James speaks of the world as the world as it now exists apart from God. It is, it is humanity as humanity exists apart from God. I want to give you several definitions of the word world that come from various commentators and theologians. The world, as one man says, is humanity in its fallenness, both alienated from God and antagonistic toward Him. Another says the world is anything and everything that is at odds with the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. Another says the world is the arena in which Christ's lordship is not recognized. Another, the world is that selfish circle of pleasures and desires and wants and wishes that exists apart from submission to God. And finally, one theologian says the world represents the person's and the forces which are indifferent toward and openly hostile to God, the world of men and things as estranged from God, as regulated by principles contrary to God's will. Now, now this is the world of which James speaks, humanity in its rebellion, humanity's institutions and structures, those things humanity in its fallenness has erected against God. This is the world. And the Bible speaks a lot about the world in this sense. It is a frequent topic of discussion in the Word of God. Just listen to the way the Bible speaks of this world of which James now writes. God says through the prophet Isaiah, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. 
I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Jesus said in his parable of the soils and the seeds, as he explained it, he says, the field, the field upon which these seeds are cast, he says, that's the world. That's the world where the gospel falls like seed. And again, Jesus said in Matthew 24, the gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come again. The gospel goes out into this this entity called the world, mankind in its fallenness, and it it comes from heaven like rain, like, like seed, Jesus says. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, we read that the devil The devil took him up to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of what all the kingdoms of the world in its arrogance, in its pride, in its rebellion against God. And the devil said, just bow down before me and I will give you all these kingdoms. And of course, Jesus would have none of that. John records our Lord Jesus as saying this one day, I've come to the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The world is where darkness is. Again, Jesus says, I've come into the world as light, as light. When Jesus prayed in John 17, what we call the great high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed for his disciples, and he says, Oh, Father, my disciples are not of the world, and I am not of the world. And so the world is not where Christ came from. And it's not where those who belong to Christ now find a home. When Jesus was arrested and made to stand before Pontius Pilate, the governor Jesus said to him something very interesting about the world. He said, my kingdom, O Pilate, is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would be fighting, but it is, it is not a kingdom of this world. And so the world is, is opposed to the kingdom of Jesus. And then the Apostle Paul, in, in words we're going to remember this morning as we come to the table, The Apostle Paul says, do do not be conformed to this world, but rather be be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the most reasonable thing you can do if you worship the Lord, he says. Don't be conformed to the world. And to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, the God of this world, little g, the God of this world has blinded the minds of every unbeliever. They cannot see the light of the glory of Christ in the face of God. The Apostle John, writing the first letter to the church, says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so to love the world is to be lost, John would say. Again, John says, all that is in the world, which is the desire of the flesh, The desires of the eyes and the pride of life, all of that is not from the Father, that's from the world. And that world, John says, the the beloved disciple says, that world is dying. 
It is passing away in all of its lust. They are, they are terminally ill. They are dying. And don't love the world, he would plead with his audience. And then John would, would say this about the world. We, we, John says, are from God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, this is the world James is writing about. When he says, if you know Jesus, you must keep yourself from being stained by that world. What is our duty? Well, it's it's clear. It's to, to keep ourselves from becoming polluted or stained by the world that the Bible describes in explicit detail. To keep oneself. What is that in verse 27? To keep yourself. What, what does that mean? Well, the idea is to, to resist something. And here is a definite responsibility that, that every believer has individually and, and all believers have corporately that the church should be made up of people who, who resist something, who are on guard for something. And that's what the word keep means. It, it means literally to keep on guarding, to guard and to keep on guarding and to, to stay on guard and to resist something. To resist being stained by the world, to resist being polluted by the world. The the never-ending task of the Christian and the church is to to resist the world's stains. Now, Now, we've been deployed into this world as ambassadors for Jesus, and yet the world into which we've been deployed, the world from which we've been saved, is a world that is horribly polluted with sin and wickedness. And yet, here we are as the ambassadors of Jesus. And while here, on station, on mission for Jesus, we have a responsibility to, to resist being brought once again under the diabolical captivity of the world. James is concerned that some of the people to whom he would write, even some of us, would would go back to living the way we used to live before we met Jesus. And the reality is that's a grave danger. It's a grave danger for every Christian, for every era. The world in which we live, the, the place of our mission is not neutral. It is not a safe environment. The world has been wrecked by human sin. It bears the marks of its rebellion against God and all of the collateral damage done by that fall. It is is defiled. It is polluted. It is completely hostile to the Lord and to all who are His. In fact, the Bible says the world hates us. John 7, 7. Jesus spoke about the world again. And listen to what He said. He says, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And so the world to which Jesus came as the Savior hates him. Why? Because he exposes the wickedness of the world. And then in John 15, Jesus taught his disciples as he's teaching us this morning and he says if the world hates you know that it has hated me before it hated you if you were of the world 
the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, Jesus says, the world hates you. And you'll notice in this passage, in chapter 4, verses 4 through following, James will talk about our relationship with the world. And Jesus says it should be one where they hate us. And then James will say, almost building off the teaching of Jesus, if you're the friend of the world... You can't be the child of God because the world hates the children of God. How might we come under the influence of the world? When James says it is the responsibility of every Christian and every church to resolutely resist being polluted by the world... What are some of those ways that we might be polluted and stained? Would you let your mind just reflect on that question for a bit? Let's think about how we here in the 21st century might be in the same grave danger that those believers were in the first century to whom James wrote. How could we be polluted? What are the inroads whereby we might be conformed to the world. How is it that we might be slowly converted if we're not careful? Could it be that one of those avenues is the pressure, that worldly pressure to be loved and to be accepted? Isn't it so basic to our being that we want to be loved? We want people to say nice things and think nice things about us. We want to be accepted. The last thing we want to be is to be considered strange or weird or to be ostracized or to be anything less than loved. And could it be that, that the world wants to love us and the world wants to accept us on its terms? Because the world fundamentally hates us. It will love us only when it converts us. How many of you, this is a dangerous question to ask. How many of you, when you married, said, oh, I love him and I'll change him? I love her, but I'll change her. Now, how'd that work out for you? Huh? But that's the message of the world. We'll love you, but first we need to convert you. And we want to be loved. And we want to be accepted. And when we give in to that, we are being polluted by the world. Could it be that the pressure to be respected is an avenue of influence from the world? Respected in the eyes of the world. Respected by those who don't know Christ or love him. And yet, there's some reason we we want their respect. And sometimes we change our doctrines because we want the respect of the academic or scientific or intellectual elite. And these outmoded doctrines of sin and death and creation and a bloody cross and some resurrected Savior, those, those are not respectable ideas, and we want respect, and so we are converted in our doctrine. How, how worldly is that? We want respect. 
And if we want the respect of the world, we're already polluted. Do you see how diabolical the world is? Think about your desire, and be honest, your desire to be seen as successful. But success as determined by worldly standards. I'm asking, I'm not telling, I'm asking you, how often are your decisions and your purchases and the clothing you wear and the words you choose to use, how often are they meant to impress the world so that you would be seen as successful in their eyes? Success as defined by the world. And so you go buy whatever it is we buy to impress people who don't love Christ, to make them think we're successful, to be, to be successful in their eyes. And when we do, we're already polluted by the world. Think about the allurements and the, the charms of the world, the world's sensuality. Think about how everything we see and deal with has been sexualized and sensualized, and we play along. Think about the materialism that is rampant in the world. Think about the consumerism which defines our culture. Think about whatever happened to modesty, whatever happened to contentment, whatever happened to self-control. Those virtues have long left the building because there is no modesty, there is no contentment, there is no self-control. Those are curse words in the lexicon of the world. And when we want to be sensual, And when we never say no to what we want to buy, and when more is better, we, we are already polluted. Think about this avenue, the world's obsession with immediate gratification, the focus on here and now, living for the moment. This moment is all there is, so we're told. We, we live like the world when we live, as if there will be no judgment day as if there's no day of accounting or reckoning. Think, think about how, how the world wants always the path of least resistance and sacrifice. Living for the moment, living for now. And when we think that way, we're already contaminated. And then think of the problem the first century Christians never had. They could, they, they could have never imagined this. Think of the problem of technology. Oh, oh, I know the blessings. I love lights. I love air conditioning. Technology is always a double-edged sword. There is a blessing, but there's a curse, isn't there? Think about the worship of technology. It's almost religious, isn't it? Please, please forgive me for meddling with you a little bit. But watch the new gadget rolled out next week. An auditorium, a temple filled with people, worshipers. 
And the high priest of the technology walks out. And projected behind him is the God. And this God can fix everything and do everything. And then we rush out and we, we offer our sacrifices to that God. Because now I can surf faster. Think about the idolatry of information. The need to know what's going on in the Soviet, former Soviet Union or in South Africa or in some far place in the universe where there is a satellite or some space vehicle gathering data. We are idolatrous with the need of information. Think about the idolatry of entertainment. How we need the stimulation that entertainment gives us now almost 24-7. We, we need that. It is an obsession. And when we do, we are already polluted by the world. And think finally about how in this world life orbits the self. Life is actually equated with happiness, my happiness. How many times do pastors and Christian counselors hear this, I want a divorce because I'm not happy? Life seems to orbit the goal of self-gratification. And when it does, we're polluted. And we've been stained by the world. Now all of this is what the Bible means when it says keep yourself, whatever you have to do, keep yourself from being stained by the world. You must be on guard. You are a soldier. You must resist being conformed to the world. You must be watchful, vigilant, alert, armed, always suspicious of enemy activity. Every time, and, and, and I'm a movie watcher, believe me, but every time we watch a movie, we are being converted to a worldview. Every time we read a book, we are being converted to a worldview. And we need to read and to watch very suspiciously. We can learn, and we should learn, and we can be entertained for the glory of God, but only as soldiers who are watching, who are resisting, who are spotting the enemy and determining to remain unsullied, unaffected. Now look at verse 4 of chapter 4. Believe me, every pastoral instinct in my heart is now to relieve the pressure that's been put on you. <laughs> but James won't let us do that. 
I appreciated Bud's prayer. Lord, help us receive the rebukes of Scripture. You're about to read some of the strongest language in all the Bible. One verse, chapter 4, verse 4. We, we can't handle the rest of that. We've got to come back next week to read the rest of chapter 4. But this one verse, verse 4 of chapter 4. You, adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, that is hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, there's a lot about that I don't like. <laughs> I don't like the first word. You adulteress, or rather, more literally, you adulteresses. Now, that's offensive. James could never speak that way today. He would be charged with all manner of social transgressions and microaggressions. He would be sued. But what makes it even more amazing is that he is not calling the world adulteresses. He is calling the church adulteresses. I mean, this strong language is not aimed at the world. It's aimed at you. It's aimed at me. Us. One scholar says, by any measure, these words that begin verse 4 are abrupt and harshly expressed. Oh, yeah. But why such extreme language? Well, the answer is, number one, because what he's talking about is a deadly serious thing. There are times... James might say that you should come to church and be scared to death. And here's one of those times. Because what he says is scary by any measure. Now, why that offensive word, adulteresses? Well, James is not just extracting a word that pops into his mind. He, he is choosing his language very carefully. And remember, remember, he's building upon the faith that many of them once had. Many of the people in the audience, those reading this letter, were former Jewish people who had come to Christ. And so all they knew was the Old Testament. That was their Bible, and indeed, that's a pretty good foundation. And James has extracted a theme that is found uh, explicitly and thoroughly throughout the Old Testament, and, and he's applying it to the church, and it is the theme that God chose Israel. He set his love on Israel. He elected Israel to be his. He married Israel. In the Old Testament, God's relationship to the covenant people is often spoken of in terms of a marriage. God chose Israel to be his bride. He put his love on them. He chose Israel and not Syria. He chose Israel and not an African nation. He chose Israel and not some European nation. Why? He tells us the answer in Deuteronomy 7. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession from all the peoples that were on the face of the earth. But it was not because you were more in number than any other nation that the Lord set his love on you. For you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it is only because the Lord loves you. For no reason other than love, God chose that one significant little pipsqueak of a nation called Israel to be the nation to bear the Savior. He married them. He chose them. He loved them. He elected them. He, he married them. And so Isaiah would say in that great 54th chapter, your maker, your maker is your husband. Israel was God's bride, and so the church is the bride of Christ. Israel belonged exclusively to Yahweh, and the church belongs exclusively to Jesus. It's no wonder that the Old Testament prophets call out Israel for her sins by way of this word, this matrimonial language of adultery. Jeremiah says, your children have forsaken me. You've sworn by the name of those who are no gods at all. You have committed adultery. And listen to the, to the harsh language of Jeremiah 5. You have committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. Whoredom. Spiritual whoredom. Or Jeremiah 7, will you steal, will you murder, will you commit adultery, will you swear falsely and make offerings to Baal? There you go. Disloyalty to their husband is adultery. Ezekiel 13, you adulterous wife. That's what Ezekiel calls Israel. You adulterous wife, you receive strangers instead of your husband. And this is James' point. In Matthew 12, our Lord Jesus, in his prophetic ministry, picked up the same theme of Israel's Old Testament prophets. He said, an evil, adulterous generation seeks for signs. An adulterous church. And so this is the point James is making with his strong language. He is applying that truth that we have been married to our God, married to his son by grace, and therefore we belong to him, and we cannot be polluted by anything or anyone else. And as the world is allowed to influence us and pollute us, then we are not faithful to our husband. That's why James says, do you not know, as if you should know, that friendship with the world is hostility with God. And if you want to be, if you choose to be the friend of the world, then you are, you are the enemy of God. A message to the church. When we permit ourselves to be shaped and influenced by the world, we are acting as the opponents of God. That's a scary proposition. When we want the world's approval and we treasure the world's definitions of success and beauty, 
when we accept the values and the priorities of the world, then we're moving in a direction that is counter to that which pleases our Lord. We become the enemy of God. We simply cannot be the friend of Jesus if we're the friend of the world. We cannot live in intimate fellowship with him while our hearts and minds are inclined to the world. Now this is the test of true Christianity. There is a resistance to that. We fight against that. We will not be polluted or stained. Now we're going to probe chapter 4 next Lord's Day. But for a moment, before we leave, before we come to the Lord's table, let the Spirit of God convict you. Let his conviction fall. Feel the weight of it. That's a good thing. It is a good thing when the Word exposes our sins and purifies us and drives us to the only source of forgiveness and salvation that there is. That's a good thing. Let the weight of the Word of the Lord squeeze out the worldliness. Let it convict it. Let it identify it. And now repent. Turn. Confess your worldliness. Find the grace that he talks about in chapter 4, verse 6. There is, there is more grace for you. You don't just get his grace when you trust him. You have it now and you get it more every day. Confess your sins. There is more grace. If you've been worldly, confess it. Repent and receive the bounty of mercy that will fall upon you as you call sin what it is. Throw yourself upon his tender mercies. As he says, draw near to God in repentance and in full confession. And he will draw near to you. Are you polluted? Are you being polluted? All week long I've thought of that old hymn. I don't know, honestly, I'm such a young Presbyterian, I don't know whether Presbyterians sing this one or not. But it's an old Baptist song that's been my prayer all week long. I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delights, things that are higher, Things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I will hasten to him, hasten so glad and free. Jesus, greatest, highest, I will come to thee. Let that be your prayer. And live for the Lord in a very dangerous world for his glory. Let's pray together.